You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6.30 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. How's it going, everybody? Y'all look so good. Wow. Uh, so, I am not David Dowdy. Sorry about that. Or... You're welcome. I don't know. However you want to take it. Whatever, it's fine. Uh, I know most of you, some of you I haven't spoken to. Um, my name is Dustin Cooley. Um, I'm a member here at Revolution. Uh, I have been for the last five years, I think, maybe. Okay. Um, so, um, I, you know, I always find starting these is just the worst, right? Um, but to be honest, what I want to start out with saying is um, I want to thank you all um, collectively, leadership, congregation, um, everybody here at Revolution Church. Um, I found Revolution Church five years ago. Um, I just graduated college, and um, I was kind of in a, a dark season of the soul, if you will, and... Um, to be honest, one of the, the things that I was lacking in my life was a fellowship of believers that I could truly call my family. Um, and you've all given that to me. Um, and I, I truly love each and every one of you. And I thank you all so much for, for being there, not only for myself, but for being there for one another. Um, the world is, is, a, is a dark, lonely, cold place, and we all have the gospel in common. Um, and through that, we are closer than family. Um, so I'm, I'm truly thankful for that in this church. And, and to be honest, God has given you guys such fantastic leaders who it has been just an absolute honor um, to work alongside with and to, to watch the growth from where we were um, when I first came here in, in 2013, when we were all, you know, young and dumb and just ready to set the world on fire, to now when, you know, we have a liturgy, right? It's just bizarre, right, to me, you know? We used to play, like, pop rock songs for worship. It was crazy. Um, so, uh, if you guys brought your Bibles with you this evening, um, I want to start out in Second Peter 1. And um, I'm really going to be focusing on verses 16 through 21, but I'm going to kind of walk through the whole chapter. Um, so what I want you guys to, to come away from this with is something that hit me so, so very hard um, many years ago. And that is the role that Scripture plays in the life of the believer. I think it's, it's too easy for us uh, to be passive about this, right? You know, we are all, you know, 10-minute devotionals and three-chapter-a-day Bible reading plans away from almost completely neglecting Scripture. Um, and not just Scripture, but the authority of Scripture and the things that God has given us in Scripture, right? Uh, it's not just that God has given us this book it is that God has given us his word. And that is such a beautiful, multifaceted part 
of everything it means to be a Christian and everything it means to be a believer. And I really want you guys to grasp just the beauty um, and the comfort and the encouragement that can be found here. So starting out um, in verse 1, Peter writes, Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. And, and just to start off, I find that fascinating. I find that to be immensely profound, right? This is coming from Peter, right? Not only was he one of the 12, but he was one of the three whom, uh, you know, we would consider to be Christ's inner circle of disciples. You know, the, the father of the, of the Jewish church, right? And what is he saying? He's saying, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of God and Savior Jesus Christ. What is he saying there? And I'm going to ask a lot of questions because normally I lead Bible studies and I'm used to you all talking back to me. So there might be some dead space. I'm sorry. Um, but what's he saying? He says, we have obtained this faith of equal standing. With who, right? I mean, certainly it's easy for us to believe, yeah, like with each other, like sure. But this is coming from Peter. And I have a hard time wrapping my mind around that most days because I'm the kind of person that when I am just on fire for Christ, when I am, you know, I'm in the word every day, my prayer life is fantastic, you know, um, and I feel Christianly, right? I have no problem believing that I am um, a man of faith or I have this, this um, faith given to me by the righteousness of God, and it is, it's having its you know, outworkings in my life. But sometimes there are those other moments when I tend to be bitter, and I tend to be passive-aggressive and lazy, or um, you know, I, I, go, you know, I make a week's sometimes without truly digging into scripture and my prayer life is failing and I don't feel very much like a Christian. And I think we've all been in those places at some point or another. If you've not questioned your faith, it's, it's coming. It's a natural part of the Christian life. But what is he saying? Is if you have obtained this faith of equal standing with ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So to steal from Paul Washer, he's a great dude to take sermons from, um, it's important to recognize that it is not us over here, right? The, the lay believers or the regular attenders or the new converts. And over here, we have our pastors or we have Charles Spurgeon, John Owen, and John Edwards, the Apostle Peter. The ground is level at the foot of the cross because we are all saved the same way. And that is such an important tenet 
of what we believe is that we are not saved by how well we behave or how well we are doing in our Christian walk. What are we saved by? We're saved by faith, right? We're saved by grace. And it says we have obtained an equal standing. Then he goes on to say, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. And in understanding that, understanding how we are saved and understanding what we were saved from and what we as people are capable of and what God has done on our behalf through Christ Jesus. We have peace. We have peace with one another. We have peace with God. We have peace about the future. We have peace about our past. That's a hard one. Because I I know most of us struggle, at least with something, at some point in our life, with sins of the past that keep us awake at night. Shame and and guilt. Um, I heard someone say once that you don't feel guilty you are guilty, you feel ashamed. Um, But when we see how far we were saved, we understand that there is peace to be had and there is peace to be multiplied in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. And that's another profound statement, right? Because Peter could have just as easily said, may may, um, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the power of God and of Jesus our Lord. Or may grace and peace be multiplied to you in your obedience to God and our Lord Jesus Christ. But he doesn't say that. He says it in the knowledge, right? And it's not what you're doing on your own behalf. It's what God has done for you. So... Keep that in mind as we walk through this. As you walk through your Christian life, keep in mind the the truth that is found and that peace that is to be had and how that peace is obtained through knowledge. So I'm going to go ahead and jump to verse 12 where Peter says, Therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities, having just talked about how... um, how we are to behave as Christians and the things that we are to supplement into our lives. He says, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus made clear to me, and I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able to recall these things. What is Peter saying there? It comes down to this. He says, I'm going to die soon. Christ has made that abundantly clear to me. Um, Tradition says Peter died, uh, he was executed as an old man. So whether or not he knew he was about to be executed or he knew he was just really old and it was coming, he knew, I'm dying soon. This is the last you are going to hear from me. And it's it's almost as if a father is speaking to his children on his deathbed and he grabs them by the hand and says, please listen. This is for your benefit. This is what I need you to understand. 
But what does he say after that? Does he go into some treatise on the doctrines of grace, or does he dig into eschatology and these finer points of the final things? Um, you know, does he go into a discourse on spiritual gifts, or does he discuss complicated theology? He doesn't. This is what he says. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his, of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son, and with him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And if you know your New Testament as well as I would hope you do, um, or as well as we should, I guess, I don't know. I was raised in Christian school, so like I was spoon-fed all of this as a kid, but this is Matthew 17. This is the transfiguration, right? So let's kind of familiarize ourselves with this story again, because some of us, you know, may need a reminder, and it helps, you know, to understand the context of what we're talking about. In Matthew 17, we see Jesus taking, um, taking three of his disciples, and he takes them up this mountain, and they're praying. And it says, all of a sudden, this cloud appeared around him, and light started shining out, and Christ's clothes became radiant, became whiter than any man could bleach them. And then two men stepped out with him and were standing there with the Christ. Um, the author of Matthew says this was Moses and this was Elijah. And then Peter says, like, it's great that we're here because we can build shrines for you guys. We're so glad that you've come back. Because to a first century Jew, seeing Moses and Elijah... I mean, there was, no greater, there was no greater high for them because to them, Moses was the foundation of their day-to-day -day lives, right? He was the lawgiver, the deliverer from the, from the slavery of Egypt. Um, everything went back to the Mosaic law. They lived their lives by it. They formed their nation around it. Their government was built on the writings of Moses. But then on the other hand, we have Elijah, the greatest prophet, right? Elijah was, was so, so foremost in their minds when they read all of the prophets, even the minor prophets, even the other major prophets, that all of it went back to, they would just consider the writings of Elijah. So if someone were to read Micah or if someone were to refer to Habakkuk, it was just common that they would just refer to Elijah being that prophetic office, right? And they recognized Elijah also as the, the, the forerunner um, to their Messiah. So they see these men standing there. And then they hear this voice coming out of this cloud. And to them, they would have also understood what the cloud was. You know, if we're familiar with our Old Testament, the cloud was the Shekinah glory of the Father. It's the cloud that led them through the wilderness, right? For 40 years. It's, it's the presence of God the Father amongst his people. And they hear this voice 
saying, this is my son, listen to him. So wrap your minds around that as a, as a first century Jewish believer. And then what does he say? And we have this prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention to as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It's so easy to read over that to glance at this passage and to just completely skip over what he just said. He said, I was there on the mountain with Christ. I saw the glory of the Father. I saw Moses. I saw Elijah with my own two eyes. But we have this word more fully confirmed. He said, I saw it. But this is better. The prophetic writings are better. Why? Why? That's the, that's the real question, right? I, I think as, as believers, especially with all the wackiness going on in the church today, all of the, the things that are bleeding in from New Age philosophy, from, from paganism, from whatever you want to call it, but what, is our, what does our world tell us? What does our culture tell us? You know, experience is the king. If you can see it, touch it, taste it, feel it, you know, it's better than just a concept, right? But Peter says this is so much better. Because our senses can lie to us. Um, fun story. Uh, a couple of months ago, I was sitting at my desk at work. I just had lunch. And... Um, I do not have a labor-intensive job by any means. Like, I promise you, like, I could get away with doing my job from my chair. I'd just have to roll it down the hallway. It would takes no effort. Um, so I'm sitting here at my computer, and all of a sudden I can't catch my breath, which is weird, right? Um, and my heart starts pounding in my chest. And I'm thinking, I'm dying. <laughs> I'm going to die at work. Everyone's worst fear. No one wants to die at work. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, well, I'll just try to, to catch my breath. And, you know, I had like one semester of nursing school before I failed out. So I'm like, I know how to take my pulse. So I pull up my stopwatch and I start checking my, uh, my, um, my pulse on my wrist. And I hear, I'm dying. <laughs> I'm dying. My heart's stopping. It's going to stop and not start back up again. So I panicked, and I ran over to the primary care wing, and I'm like, please tell me if I'm dying. Um, and everybody gets super concerned, and no, none of them are talking to me, so I'm just a mess. I called Catherine, and I'm like, babe, goodbye. Like... <laughs> I hope my life insurance has like matured at this point. You know, go live with the Dowdies; it'll be fine. <laughs> um, 
and it turned out to be nothing at all, which was really frustrating. Um, I wasn't dying, but I felt like I was. My senses told me I, I was dying. I felt it, right? What are we told? If your heart stops, you're dead, you know? Guess not. Um, so our senses can lie to us. Our perception of the way things are does not dictate reality. Reality exists outside of our own head, regardless of what culture is telling us right now. Um, everything is objective. And what we have in Scripture is we have things that were written thousands of years ago by scores of men, right? That came true, right? Because I can see something happen, right? And I, I don't have to believe it because my heart is wicked, right? How many people saw Christ perform these miracles? Um, most of Israel, actually. Um, how many people were there after Christ ascended? It was not most of Israel, I promise you that. Um, why? Because the truths of what is revealed here in Scripture or their perception of Scripture did not match up with what they thought was coming or what they saw. And it's only through Scripture that men's hearts are actually changed. So, what do we see throughout Scripture? What, what is, what's unfolding before us in this grand narrative? Um, you know, this red scarlet or the scarlet thread of redemption that starts at the fall and goes all the way to the end what do we see we see christ in christ's teachings he said you search the scriptures but you don't understand that they're about me this is my story this is not about anything arbitrary this is not just stories for the sake of you understanding how cool your nation has been throughout history this is about me. I did this. We, we, see, we see it creation, right? We see in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we understand that in Colossians 1, or I don't know if it's Colossians 1, maybe. In Colossians, um, <laughs> it says that by Christ were all things made. He holds all things together. So when we let Scripture interpret Scripture, what do we see? God says, let there be light, and Christ says, got it. Right? And then we move forward to the fall. And we see, we see man created in God's image, and we see um, man rebel, right? Our federal head, Adam, selling us all into slavery of sin with no hope of redemption but what does God say he tells the woman he's like childbirth is going to hurt for you but understand that through your offspring I'm going to bring forth one that will crush the serpent's head 
but it will bruise his heel. And it's easy standing back looking behind us through the corridors of time to understand, well, that was Christ. But to a first century Jew who was just kind of wrapped up in whatever cultural interpretations they had, it was a little harder for them to understand until the Holy Spirit illuminated their hearts, as it says before, until the the light shines within our hearts and and brings forth salvation. In, In the narrative of Noah, we see that humanity has again, which is this is going to be the theme, humanity again falls into wickedness and unrepentance. There's only a remnant of righteous people, and God says, I'm going to decide to save this small group of eight people when it's perfectly just for me to just exterminate them all. For my own righteousness' sake, I will save them, right? And in in, in Old Testament Jewish literature, we see water, right? Water is a symbol of, of, of God's judgment, right? Of the, the washing away of, of wickedness and this torrent that just envelops all sin. And what do we see? We see this ark being pushed through by God through his judgment, delivering his people unto salvation. We see the ark as a foreshadowing of Christ who is going to save his church from the judgment of God. Flash forward, we see Abraham. God tells Abraham, go sacrifice your son to me. He goes up the mountain with his son. He has the knife. And all of a sudden, God stops him. There's a ram caught in the bush. God says, there's your sacrifice. Because you can't do what I'm asking you to do. You cannot do what is necessary. Only I can do this. Only I can kill my son as an atonement for sin. We see this ram that God provides for the sacrifice as a foreshadowing of Christ. We see again with with Moses delivering the people out of Egypt. More water imagery, right? God parts the Red Sea, and he delivers his people safely through. And what happens? The sea falls back in on its accusers, or on their accusers. We see God saving his people through his judgment that is to befall sinners not soon after. We see David and Goliath, right? We see this boy with, with nothing attractive about him that would cause us to believe that he is a mighty warrior. Stand up to a giant that none of the other ar- soldiers within the army of Israel would do. They couldn't do it. So we see Christ there as well as this, this David figure slaying the proverbial giant of sin. Here's a fun one. The temple, right? The temple and the tabernacle. Um, when God sends his people out into the wilderness, he says, build a home for me. But make it to where you can move it around with you. 
take it down. And when you set up camp, set up my, set up my, my tabernacle. Right? And then later on, when Israel becomes a nation, God tells them, build a temple. Fix it to the ground on a foundation. It won't be moved. It's, it's stone. It's not, no longer made of, of animal skins and logs and things like that. And then now, whereas when the people of Israel were sojourners, God's home existed with them as a sojourning home, and then when they became a nation... It was fixed on a foundation and it was there with their nation. Now we see the dwelling place of God in men's hearts, right? Christ became flesh and dwelt among us. We see Christ is the good husband in the book of Hosea. Doing what, what most men never would. You know, God says to Hosea, take a prostitute as a wife and understand she is not going to be faithful to you. Gentlemen? Um, but what happens? She goes back out. She sells herself back into bondage. And Hosea runs to her and buys her back and redeems her and brings her back into his home. And loves her. There's such beautiful gospel imagery in that story. We are that wife. This undeserving, unfaithful bride. Who did everything to flee our husband. To the fact that we sold ourselves back into sin. And Christ still died for us. That's so beautiful. One more. In the book of Habakkuk, the prophet sees this wickedness within his nation. Within his nation. Even the righteous people are unrighteous. And everything's going without justice. And sin is running rampant. And Hosea is crying before the Father like, God, when are you going to vindicate yourself? And God says, well, here's what's going to happen. So I've raised up this nation, this wicked nation... And they're going to decimate you guys. But write this prophecy and post it to where anyone who sees it can run and flee from this coming wrath. Christ is that sign. Just as Hosea scrawled out his prophecy, nailed it to a post and put it up for people to see and then to run to, we see Christ lifted on a cross that we who look at him can flee the wrath of God and run to him as sons the Old Testament is dripping with images of Christ in fact um, you know that's why tradition would say that, that Paul spent two years in the wilderness I believe it was two years after his conversion, is he had to go relearn everything he had been taught about Scripture to understand this all points back to Christ. And ladies and gentlemen, that's the most important lesson I could teach you, is that through this, yes, this is inspired Scripture. 
Yes, this is the holy word of God, but this is also the written image of Christ. I love that. I love that name for the, for the holy word. The written image of Christ. Because in here we see him. We see our Savior. So how do we respond to that? How do we, how do we take that concept from this theological idea that we stroke our beards on and nod our head in agreement and work it out in our lives? How do we do that? So our response to Scripture, to the, the written image of Christ, is this. We must read these words as if God himself were standing before us, speaking them aloud to us. Why? Because it says here, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Why do we treat these words as if God were speaking them directly to us himself? Because he did. Certainly we can account for stylistic differences in writing. We can account for, you know, different genres of literature within, within Scripture. But that doesn't make them any less inspired. We have to understand the importance of that. That the, we are never to approach this book lightly or half-heartedly. Or as I mentioned before, like I'm going to just knock these three chapters out before I go to bed so I can finish the Bible this year. Or i got to do my 10-minute devotional today before I can get back to doing whatever I want to do. Secondly, Scripture must be the light that God has sent in this world to dispel darkness. Our hearts are more wicked than we possibly know. And even as believers, we will always have these dark little unevangelized scabs on our heart that will crop up and they will cause us problems and we will sin. But how do we try to prevent that, right? Or in, in the life of the unbeliever, we see rampant darkness in our culture. What changes that? Is it evidential apologetics, like defending the gospel through science, right? Or is it the preaching of the word of God? Because to think back on it, that's all that we're told will change men's hearts. It's the word of God. We don't argue someone into the life of a Christian by explaining to them ten reasons why, you know, evolution is wrong. In fact, most of the time with debates, both sides just become more entrenched in their own opinion. Especially if that debate gets out of hand. All we've done then is just made them a martyr for their cause. But when we allow Scripture to be our guide and we allow Scripture to defend itself... It's doing the work for us. It's doing the work that God says it will do. When he says, um, you know, we, 
will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in our hearts. And to do that, we have to acknowledge the darkness within our own hearts and allow Scripture to do its work to dispel that darkness from us. And that's such a challenging thing to do. I can lie to anybody in this room, right? I can make any of you believe whatever I want you to believe about me. Because most of you, well, maybe about half of you, don't know me well enough to understand when I'm lying, right? But it is so hard for me to read the first three chapters of Romans and lie to myself. Try it. You can't do it. What do I see in Scripture? I see my own wickedness. I see my own depravity. These wicked tilts of my heart towards sin that still exists, although I desperately desire that they're not there. And it's only through Scripture and it's only through God's Word and allowing it to change me and to take root in my heart that that ever changes. It's not behavior modification, right? You know, I can do all kinds of behavior modification, but if it doesn't change my heart, it's not going to change my actions. It might slow my actions down, but my actions are still there because my heart's wicked. And this requires honesty and vulnerability. We need to drop this facade that as believers we have it all together. And I don't know who in here struggles with this, I generally have this misplaced sense of pride where I think, well, uh, I'm generally better than I actually am. Um, And by the grace of God, that is more evident to me now than ever. Why? Because it's caused me so many problems. And then when I hold myself to this, this mirror and I see Christ and I see myself here, I understand that the only thing that is going to change me is these words. And the only thing that is going to save people is within Scripture. As I said before, it's not going to be evidential apologetics or scientific arguments as to why God must exist, right? Because I can, I can argue someone into theism, right? I can make someone believe in a God. A lot of people believe in a God, But only scripture shows us the beauty of Christ. It requires that we acknowledge the objectivity of scripture as well. Because it says God gave us these words. Men were moved by the Holy Spirit as they wrote down what the the Spirit was impressing on their hearts. It's inspired, right? I'm sure those of you with kids find it absolutely painstakingly frustrating when you tell your kids, hey, go clean your room. And they look at you and so what you're actually saying is go back outside, right? In that same scenario, we don't get to dictate what someone is objectively saying, right? We don't get this conservative or liberal 
understanding or interpretation of Scripture. Like, which side do you fall on? Is this more, uh, was he saying this in this, or was he saying this here? He was actually saying something um, that he had in mind when he put it on paper, right? What does it mean? It's not, what does it mean to me? What does this mean for me? Keep that in mind, because I promise you that will save you so much heartache, and it will save you um, from so much just goofiness that goes on in the name of Christ. Because finding truth takes work, right? Psalm 119 says it's a striving. And the author there says, God, thank you so much for allowing me to toil in your word, to strive in your word. It's not, God, just beam this into my head, please, which would be so much easier. But that never happens. In fact, God's going to let you struggle with understanding his word to keep you humble. Um, you know, there are seemingly easy passages that I've struggled with for years. Um, and it's all, it's all in the name of, of understanding that this takes work, this takes effort. Theology is not um, a vain pursuit. And listening is difficult, right? Listening is actually the most complicated thing we do on a day-to-day basis. Um, it's not a passive activity. Like I said before, we'll hear what we want to hear if we're not listening. So when we see these words, we have to take special note to pay attention to what is God actually telling me? What does God want me to know? Pray, hit your knees. God, please show me. Show me the truth in your word. Because we don't get to decide what he's saying. We should never take that liberty with scripture. And finally, what is the result of taking this view of Scripture, of understanding that Scripture is all about Christ and it is useful in the life of the believer to to deliver us from our own wickedness and to save people's souls and to make us holy? What is the benefit of that? First of all, it's Christ's exalting, which should be the number one goal in the life of the believer. I promise you, we will fail at it. We will fail at giving Christ the glory that he deserves. But taking step towards it can't hurt, right? That's our whole goal is to see Christ magnified in the world, right? We don't go preach the gospel because we want more people in our building. How many people do that? And what kind of nonsense do we see going on in the church today? Because people just try to get people through the door. What is our goal? Our goal is to see Christ worshipped and lifted high and made the king of the world. Secondly, it conforms us to his image. When we allow scripture to work in our lives, to, to draw us towards this holy living or to kill our sin, we're becoming more and more like Christ. This idea of sanctification, 
progressive sanctification, that throughout the life of the believer, we are killing sin and killing sin and becoming more like Christ until the day we die, it says we will be made like him.